of having Pastor Ramney Perez from Fordham Community Church uh, in the Bronx. Uh, Ramney and I went to seminary together. Uh, we, we met first, move, some of you know Charlie Moore. We were moving Charlie Moore's stuff, and that's where I met Ramney and his wife, Dodgy, and, and, uh, and then getting to take some classes. I, Ramney found out that I'm half Cuban, and then he was saddened by the fact that I know no Spanish at all. But I did say, you know, I do have a good beard and I do look pretty good in olives. So like that's my Cuban credentials right there. Um, so either way, uh, Ramy is a dear friend. We've been trying to get him to come and join us for, for several, uh, multiple times. But finally our schedules lined up and I'm just so thrilled. He's a, a, a dear friend, dear brother, a faithful minister um, and is... You know, the Lord is blessing him and Fordham Community Church. They're growing. He was just saying they've just added a Spanish service alongside their English service. And um, it, it is a, a great pleasure to have him with us. So, uh, Randy, would you come and bring God's word for us? It is an honor uh, to be with you all, Maranatha. And, and uh, to me, I consider a great privilege to be able to um, be here. I, I've heard and uh, we are so grateful for the ministry of this church, for you all as a body. We, we often have you dear in our hearts, actually, uh, though I have never had the privilege of being here, uh, just because of knowing personally some of your leaders, uh, but also knowing of the faithfulness uh, of God's word taught here, of the faithfulness of how you have lived for many years together here. You, you guys are in many ways something of a model that every church plant, like the one we uh, planted in Fordham, aims to be. To to have a long presence of faithfulness in an area. So we're very grateful for you, and I count it a great honor to be here with you all. I know that that's not a straight line, that there's always difficulties and hills, so don't, 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 don't hear me glossing over whatever difficulties I'm sure you've lived through. But nevertheless, we are encouraged by you. And today I, I, uh, I, I want to preach on this passage, Genesis 39, and specifically I want to talk about uh, this morning what to do when you find yourself in the midst of a valley. I don't want to talk today about after the valley or before the valley, but, but when you are in the midst of a season of particular acute suffering. Uh, whenever God allows you and causes you and through his sovereignty leads you into uh, a particular valley of suffering. You know, it's easy to talk about suffering after suffering has passed. We, we can kind of look back and say, hey, God did this. And it, it's even easy somewhat to talk about suffering before you're in it because you can, you can, you can talk about it without the pressure of walking through it. So, so this morning, I really just want to look at what to do while you find yourself in the midst of a valley, in the midst of a season of acute suffering. But to do that, I first want to tell you about uh, a podcast I once heard. I, I am a basketball fan. I don't know if there's any uh, uh, NBA fans here, but I was I, I, part of what I do in part of my basketball fandom is that I listen to, uh, I not only watch the games, but I listen to podcasts about the games after the game. Okay, so, so, so the, I, I once was listening to a particular podcast and there was a NBA player who was now retired and he was discussing what life was like 
after his life in, in basketball. Now, he talked about the things that you would assume would be there. He talked about having the opportunity to spend time with his kids, having the opportunity to be more with his family and his wife, and just having a lot more free time than he had available while he was on a professional athlete NBA sort of schedule. Now, as part of the thing that he described in his newfound sort of time and freedom in retirement, he described a new endeavor he began to tackle along with some friends. Let me describe what the challenge they committed to doing was. They said that they would once a year come together and commit to, together as a group of friends, uh, to, to engaging a particular challenge that they had never done before. It had to be a physical challenge. They could not have greater than a 50% chance of accomplishing the challenge. And they, there would be no like uh, help to rely on in the challenge. It was just them as, as a group of friends, whatever they were doing, uh, with no one to rescue them from it. The first challenge that he had the opportunity of jumping into with them was to paddleboard 30 miles uh, across uh, a vast uh, uh, portion of ocean in Southern California. He said he had never paddleboarded before in his life. And so he began to describe the excitement of the day. There was this, okay, all the guys are at the beach and we're together with your paddle boards. He's never done this before. The family of everyone is on the other end where they're going to arrive. Uh, and, and, and there's no help boat, you know, that kind of follows you along. It's just them, this paddle board, and many miles ahead of them. And they begin, he's the only professional athlete in the group, and they all begin to kind of push away from the ocean, push away from the beach, and, and soon after, there's a hundred yards out of, and, and deeper into the water, and he looks back, and he's already feeling it in his legs. He's feeling the pain. He's feeling the, the difficulty. He's being lapped by these guys who are not professional athletes. He's like, what is happening? Like, I, uh, why am I losing so bad? Why is this hurting so much? I've never done this before. And he, he just, little by little, begins to think of the pain he's feeling. He begins to bleed out of his toes because he's kind of trying to stay afloat and planting his feet down and then and then he's like oh my gosh this is so hard he looks back and he's like I can't turn around I'm too far off it'll hurt just to go back and he's like I can't even see the end I, I don't know where the end is I, the guys are ahead of me they're lapping me I'm in pain I'm bleeding I can't even stand anymore I don't know where I began and he's just losing it and then he realizes and he just says, if I stand to the side a little bit, it hurts a little bit less. And so he just starts focusing on, on making sure that every single stroke, every single paddle was just the right form. He, he said, I, I'm not going to think about my progress I'm not going to think about how much I have left to go. I'm not going to think about how far I am from the shore. I am just going to focus on the right form for each and every single time that I paddle and that I stroke. And then I'm just going to focus on making sure that my feet are planted rightly, that my, that my form is perfect, and that every single stroke moves me forward along. And before he realizes it, after something like 8 to 10 hours, he arrives at the other end with the shearing applause of his family. 
I think that's a beautiful illustration of what to do in the midst of suffering. When you are in the midst of suffering, just make sure you do the next right thing. Just make sure that you walk faithfully in the next right thing. So from this passage, I want to talk to you about two points this morning. When you walk in righteousness in your suffering, you have the blessing of God on your life as he is using your suffering to accomplish the plans that he is developing. And I want to show you that in two points. You, as God's blessed one, need to walk righteously in your suffering. You need to walk faithfully in your seasons of suffering. And two, when you walk righteously in suffering, you are connected to Jesus Christ. Those are my two points this morning. When you walk righteously in suffering, you are connected in Jesus to Jesus. The second point, first point, you need to walk righteously in suffering. Now, I don't know if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, but I'll make reference to this passage over and over again. So if you do, I'd, I'd encourage you to have it. I, I want you to notice that in this passage in Genesis 39, it's a very well-known passage, but I think we often overlook what's actually happening in the passage. Notice the emphasis on how blessed Joseph is. There's this overwhelming emphasis that Joseph is one who has the smile of God, the hand of God, the favor of God, that he is blessed by God. Notice verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his his Egyptian master. So, So he is clearly with God, God with him, and there's an emphasis both at the beginning of this passage and at the end of this passage that God is with him. He, he begins as a slave in his Egyptian master's house, and he is blessed by God. He ends in jail, and there is an emphasis that he is still blessed by God. So he is, there is a sandwiching in this passage that clearly emphasizes Joseph is one who has God's presence with him. Now, The biggest gift and the best gift that God gives, the great treasure that God gives to his people is his presence with them. That is the best gift God gives to his people. It is that he is with them and that he is on their side. That is the the blessing that is given to Abraham, that he has a covenant relationship with God, the creator, even though he was a pagan man who did not know him, that God entered into a relationship with him by his grace and made a covenant with him and said, I will be with you. That blessing and that covenant gets passed down to the children of Abraham. And isn't that what the Bible finishes. The Bible finishes in Revelations with us in a covenant relationship with God, no longer needing the Son or anything else because God himself will be with us. The best thing God gives any person is himself. And it is the blessing of he walking with you, the promise of his presence with you, the promise of it is a covenant privilege to be in a relationship with God where you have the favor of God. So we see that Joseph is a child of Abraham and has this blessing. And we, in Christ, have actually also received this, the real fulfillment of this. Because in Christ, we have God who dwells with us through the Spirit and whom, as the Lord promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have God's favor and God's blessing. He is with us. And that is the best gift that God can give. 
So, so there's an emphasis in the passage that Joseph is blessed by God, that God is with him. It's not only emphasized, it's also evident. Notice how his master, that is the, the Egyptian master who's enslaving him, notices that Joseph is blessed by the divine hand. He, he notices because everything that Joseph touches turns to gold. It's like everything that Joseph is allowed to touch, it begins to flourish and to multiply. And so, and so his, his master realizes this man is clearly being backed up by a divine hand. He, he is blessed by God because God was causing to flourish all that he entrusted to him. And so as a result, he finds favor in his eyes. And he entrusts to him everything that he has. And he says he has no concern for anything that he had. He, he entrusted to him everything because this man had God with him. So there's an emphasis that Joseph is blessed. It is evident that Joseph is blessed. And Joseph becomes a source of blessing even to this pagan man himself. It says that because of God's presence in verse 5, God caused everything that Joseph touched in field and in house to, to flourish. And it says that the, the Egyptian master was blessed as a result of this. Now, what we're seeing here is the beginnings, the rumblings of what ultimately gets fulfilled in Jesus. That is that the children of Abraham would become a source of blessing to the nations around them. So we're seeing this theme that is sort of expanding. So, so Joseph, blessed by God, who, who God is with him, and yet he also becomes a source of blessing to the nation around him, to the nations around him. Which is, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, but it's true of his people that we become a mediating source of God's blessing to those around us. He is being used by God in this passage to bless a man who is far from God, who is enslaving him. But the thing that stands out in this passage is that God is with him in the midst of him being a slave. That there is this emphasis that Joseph has God's presence and the blessing of God's presence with him in the midst of the worst time of his life. In the midst of the worst trial of his life. In the midst of the worst kinds of things that he can walk through as an individual. Remember the context of Joseph's life. He is a man uh, who, as a young man, had, been, had received these visions and these dreams that he would be elevated above his brothers and that even his father and mother would bow to him. Do you, you remember that story where he has these dreams and, and then as a result, his brothers become jealous and, and as a result, they eventually uh, sell him off and, become, and he becomes enslaved and he ends up in this situation? He had every reason to think through these dreams that God would bless him to such an extent that he would avoid any kind of difficulty, that he would avoid any kind of hurdles and, and challenges, that instead his life would go from up to up to up to up to up and just, and just continue flourishing. But instead, he finds himself in Egypt, in a strange land, or uh, separated from his family, 
separated from, from those he's known, separated from the context in which he was reared, separated from the people who had received the covenant promises of God, separated. And in a place that he does not know, with people who do not fear God, and there's this emphasis that God is with him, that God is blessing him. See, part of the lesson in this passage is that the Lord is allowing Joseph to thrive in his difficulty. And that thriving in this instance was not to remove the immediate, immediately the difficulty, but to experience God's presence with him while still in it. And to be used by God as a blessing while he was still in it. So that God's blessing on an individual is not to make you, help you or eliminate uh, uh, the difficulties that you will face or the test of faith that you will face. But that God's blessing on an individual is to enable them to thrive in faithfulness and in righteousness while they're suffering. The passage emphasizes the blessedness of Joseph, that God is with him, that he has shown him steadfast love, that he has God's covenant gift of his presence with him, that he will not ever leave him even though he allows him to walk through difficult circumstances. But notice that there's a correlation between his faithfulness and the usefulness and the blessedness that he experiences in giving to others. See, he begins, he continues being faithful as God is helping him to thrive in these circumstances. And part of that faithfulness is that he becomes a blessing even to the man who would be his natural enemy. What I'm trying to tell you is this, that the blessed, steadfast love of God in your life is often evident when God helps you to thrive and flourish in your suffering, not when he removes it. That, that God's mercy is evident in your life when he is producing Christ-like, gospel-centered, humble, steadfast, enduring, like, like assurance of salvation, producing faithfulness in the midst of suffering and not by merely removing the difficulties in your presence. And let me tell you something, Mariana, that you should pray that God will help you through the difficulties that you are facing or will face to help you Walk faithfully in them. Not only should we pray that, God, would you remove the difficulty? We should pray that. That is a good prayer. That is a right prayer. But you should also pray, uh, pair that prayer with asking the Lord, help me to walk faithfully in the difficulty as well. Because that's the example we see in this life. Joseph is in the midst of the worst kinds of difficulty and suffering a person can experience. And yet God helps him to thrive in it by helping him to walk righteously in it. There's this interesting thing, which is usually the thing that stands out in this passage. That is that Joseph is in his master's house. He's blessed by God. He's walking and being there, trying to, trying to just do the things that he as a slave is being asked to do. When suddenly and seemingly out of nowhere, uh, the master's wife takes a liking into him and begins to try to pursue, uh, to enter into an illicit physical relationship with him. 
we see in verse 6 that she begins to pursue him because she, the passage tells us he was handsome in form and appearance. And you, you can just imagine the brother's a good-looking young brother. He's out here working in the fields. And so, and so she, she, she just begins to set her eyes on him and, and begins to try to seduce him and pursue him uh, sexually. And, and, and there's a sexual temptation that begins to occur in this passage. Now, the other thing you have to notice about this passage is that it wasn't a one-time off. Like it didn't just, when I remember this as like Sunday school when you're a kid, you think it's just a one moment thing. But I don't know if you noticed in the passage that it was a regular occurring thing. It it says that she came to him uh, day by day asking him, lie with me, right? Uh, And and he refused. And and as he continued to say no, she continued to come. And then eventually, verse 10, day after day, he would say no. Then eventually she catches him and what she sees is a moment of vulnerability. And she tries to take advantage at that moment. So there is clearly here a temptation towards sexual desire that is illicit and that would be contrary to the way that God created him. But I don't think that the temptation is merely to satisfy a particular pleasure. I think that the temptation here is really one of faith. Can you imagine, and would you just join me for a second, being in Joseph's shoes? You had been receiving these visions, these dreams from God, that God would bless you. You trusted them. You were excited for them. So much so that you tell your brothers, you tell your father, and, and you're excited and you begin to share it because you think that's the way things are going to go, that, that God is speaking to you. He, he, you, you feel and, and live that God is with you. You've been trying to walk faithfully in those things. You, you've been trying to be faithful to the covenant as you've learned it from your father and grandfather as you've received it, that, that he is walking faithfully to the God of Israel as he is able to. And yet suddenly... You find yourself in a place far away, exiled, enslaved, seemingly abandoned by God in every which way. Where your faithfulness did not match the result. Where it feels like, is it even worth following Jesus? Is it even worth following him faithfully because everything's going wrong as I'm doing it? See, I think that the temptation is not merely one of, should I enjoy this illicit sexual pleasure? It's really one of, do I still believe in the covenant God, Yahweh, the God of heavens? And do I still trust him in a land that is strange? Because the question that suffering and the temptation that suffering will introduce in your life is this question. What's the purpose of serving him? Does it even, is it even, even worthwhile? Does it, does, it, does it matter? What value is there if I still have to walk through what is hard? Every temptation that suffering produces is always one of, do I still believe that God is good? Do I still believe that he is worth it? And do I still believe that he values more than anything else in this life. That's, that's always the question at the heart. That's always a temptation at the heart of seasons of suffering in your life. Do I trust his word and the promise of his word more than the promise of sin? 
So it's actually striking to hear his response in this passage. Look at verse 8 with me. Because in light of, of considering the context, his response is striking. Look at what he says. He says, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. Notice this, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he refuses for two reasons. It would be a great violation of the trust and the favor that his master has put in him. And two, it would be a great act of wickedness and sin against God. What's striking is the strong language that Joseph uses to describe this action. He, he uses language of great Wickedness, he, he, his reference point is still God. His, his, his ability to look at and evaluate the goodness or the evilness of a thing is still God-centered so that he sees the world around him in a way that is still primarily trying to view it from God's eyes and so that he noticed that this temptation, that this evil, that this thing that he would jump into if he engaged in it with her would be an act of great wickedness against God because he still viewed sin through God's eyes, even while he was in suffering far away. You know, part of the temptation that sin always does is to play a magic trick on us and make sin look less dangerous than it is. Part of it is to say, well, it's not really that bad. It's not really that, you know, I mean... Anybody would understand that if, I'm, if they were going through what I'm going through, you know, they would also do this. Everybody would understand. Joseph had every reason to talk like that. He had every, every excuse to think like that. And yet he still evaluates sin as sin in the midst of difficulty. I think one of the things that we increasingly need to cultivate in our hearts to effectively fight sin, especially when we're going through a particularly difficult season in our life, is to make sure that the affections of our heart, that is that the things that our hearts desire, are in line and agree with God's own. Because, because temptation will make you be tempted to make a switch and say, well, what God desires right now, I, I don't want it as much. And two, suffering will make you say, is it even worth desiring the kinds of things that God desires? And so you need to cultivate in your heart the ability to assess sin correctly and also to desire the kinds of righteousness that God would be honored with and, and, to, and to delight in it from the inside out so that you would see life through God's eyes and have the same assessment of sin through his eyes. And the root of this is faith. Do I believe God at his word? That's why I say that temptation in suffering is always a question of faith. Now, there are times where you walk faithfully, you have a victory, and suffering does not subside, but only increases. And that's kind of what happens to him. He says no to every time she comes and tries to seduce him. 
She tries to catch him when he's alone. He says no. And at this point, you think he won the victory. It's like he, he, he passed the test. So now go get your A. But that's not what happens. Then she goes, makes up a lie, and he ends up in jail. So he was in a hole enslaved, and he's only further in that hole. Now he's, in jail, he's enslaved in a jail. You know, we're living in a time where the question, and if you're in your like 20 to 30s, I think we all face this, but especially the, the, the generation in the 20s or 30s, if you're a Gen Z or a millennial, can I just like plead with you to just make sure you hear me for a second? We're living in a generation and in a time where we're asking the wrong question of the Christian faith. What we're asking is, does it work? Does it help me to produce an anxious free life? Does it help me to live a life where uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling stress-free and I'm feeling happy and I'm feeling restored and I'm feeling like I'm healing from my trauma? That, that's the questions that we're asking. And, 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 and I think that God's Word is truly able to help us to grow in a flourishing, happy life. Like God's Word can help you flourish through anxiety and through difficulties, but it's the wrong question. The question to ask of Christianity is not, does it work? Is, is it true? And if it is true, then the truth always works. And the problem is that when things seem to not be working, even though you're walking supposedly faithfully, then you will ask yourself, is it worth continuing? And there are many who are leaving their faith and, and, and deconstructing and leaving Christianity because they're asking the wrong question of it. They're asking, does it work to produce this kind of uh, suffering-free life? And that's not the gospel. The gospel is that our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way and never did anything wrong, died and suffered while acquainted with grief for our righteousness. And, and so the gospel calls Christians to be ready to suffer righteously, joining him outside of the gate, uh, bearing the same reproach that he endured. The question is, is it true? Not does it work? It is better to suffer for doing right, if that should be God's will, than for doing what is evil. The reality is that when God helps you to walk faithfully in your suffering, that is to still trust Him, still walk as you know His Word calls you to, you have more reason to know that heaven is coming your way than before. You have more reason to be assured that truly you belong to God by His grace. Because as Romans chapter 5 tells us, suffering produces endurance and character, and it ultimately ends up with hope. Why? Because you can look in the mirror and say, wow, I really must be born again. <laughs> I really must have been purchased by him. He is keeping me, and he is making this difficulty I'm walked through a servant to me. So friends, in your suffering, walk righteously. In your suffering, walk faithfully. Because when you do so, 
you are connected to Jesus. Now, when we suffer, we are connected to Jesus in part because suffering is a great blessing and a privilege of the Christian life. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians, Philippians, I mean, sorry, to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, if you have a copy of the scriptures. And notice the interesting language used in this passage. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Look at what it says. It says, or I'll give you guys a second to get there. Uh, at my church, part of how we handle this particular moment is you give me an amen once you're there, and that way I know, okay, we're all there, and we read together. I don't know if you, might not that you want to try that with me, amen? All right, we, I'll take that. Look at what this passage says. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Okay, so when Jesus and God was giving out all the gifts, this is the one that we're like, God, give that one to your other saint. Don't give that one to me, please. Like, like I will take, you know, forgiveness. I'll, I'll take being adopted. I'll take being redeemed. I, I, I'll take being transformed. I, I'll, take, I'll take every other nice gift you got, but the one of being granted to suffer, like that gift, God, please give that to your other, you know, my other brother or sister. They're real strong believer. Like they, they got this. They can, they can endure that one. They can walk through that one. Lord, like, listen, God, I, I don't need that many gifts. I'll just take, I'll just take, you know what I'm saying? Like you get, you, I'll take all the other gifts. You give that one to somebody else. And yet, the passage tells us it is a privilege. Privileges are the things that are granted. You understand what I mean? Granted is language of you have been allowed to also participate in this privilege. What is the privilege? To suffer for the sake of Christ. So, so it is a privilege when you were dead in your sin to be granted faith so that you would believe in him. Right, that The Spirit makes you alive when you were dead, helps you to respond to the gospel with faith. Now, one of the privileges that God gives each and every single Christian is that he grants you to suffer with him. So that your suffering as a Christian also has useful God self-glorifying purposes. Your suffering has redemptive purposes in God's hands. Your suffering is used by God in a gospel-shaped way, not only to mold you and make you more like Christ, but through you to advance the gospel and the blessings of God to others. Your suffering is never just a pond. It is a river. It is, it is meant to be water that is flowing and going somewhere, not merely stale and stagnant. See, Joseph ends up in jail seemingly further in a pit but he's also now further ahead in advancing God's master plan because in that jail God will bless him and be with him and all of a sudden he'll be in charge of that jail too and and he'll be making and entrusting and caring and leading everything in the jail and, and God's steadfast love is visible with him there. He is blessed by God in the jail. But in the jail, positioned perfectly at the right time, he would also meet 
two men to whom he would interpret their dreams, uh, and, and one of which, two years later, would become the source of him being brought out of that jail and ultimately fulfilling and accomplishing God's master plan for him, which was to elevate him to the second in power position in Egypt so that he would be the means of salvation for the people of Israel. See, God's master plan for Joseph through his suffering and his faithfulness was to use him so that the people of Israel were rescued. And in that, we see and are reminded of another whose brothers also betrayed him. We see and are reminded of another who also was suffered as a means of salvation for his people. And in that, we are reminded of another who God in his sovereign hand planned the detail of his life so that he would too be elevated as the means by which salvation and blessing would come to the people of God. That is Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the better Joseph. That Jesus is the savior of his people who suffered in our place and in his righteous suffering, who never sinned, never, never scoffed back, never, never had a thought to turn against God the Father. He was always doing everything that pleased God the Father. And yet in his suffering and through his suffering, he became the means of redemption for many. He is the true righteous suffering servant. That is Jesus Christ. So that your suffering is always connected to Jesus. One, because you're called and privileged to join in it. And two, because your suffering is an extension of the sufferings of Jesus. Because your suffering is part of that gospel story that is played out in each and every Christian's life. And used by God so that the gospel will move forward and become a bless source of blessings to others. Friends, there is nothing better in this life to know that God is with you. And there is nothing better in this life to know that God is forming Jesus in you. And there is nothing better in this life than to know that. Because you know that if you share in his suffering, you also share in his glory. So in your suffering, do not become self-centered. Don't say, I'm entitled to this or that. Because everybody would understand, look at what I'm going through. Don't say it's okay to stop doing the basic things that are faithfulness. Let me stop going to church. Let me stop serving others. No, you continue serving as an expression of your faith in Jesus. You continue living righteously as an expression of your faith in Jesus. And as the realization that in joining his suffering, glory will come. Now, let me tell you something. One of the best ways to fight sadness is to not only think about your sadness, but to begin to serve somebody else in the midst of your sadness. And, 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 and we get this wrong in suffering. We, we become so self-centered that we only ever soak in it and we don't ever get out of ourselves and serve somebody else. And, and actually, this is one of the best ways to even begin to experience healing and restoration from that kind of period of sadness. Now, I trust that, like me, you have, haven't always responded perfectly in suffering. Maybe you're here and you're like... There have been times that I've struggled, and I don't think I responded well there. But don't forget that the reason you have grace is because somebody suffered for you. That Jesus Christ suffered in your place so that you would be made fully righteous. And that even now, if you would repent and trust him and you confess your sin, he, he says, I, I will grant you grace. I will forgive you and restore to you all righteousness. 
Do not give up the next faithful act in your suffering. Stay faithful in private. Run from sin whenever it presents itself. Stay faithful to practicing what is godly. I started by telling you the story of uh, this NBA athlete who just focused simply on the right form and the right stroke each and every single paddleboard rather than focusing on when the suffering would end or when it started. When you're in the midst of the valley, just walk righteously because when you do so, you are connected to the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy and the privilege of being able to walk with Jesus, that it has been granted to us to suffer with him. Lord, I pray for each and every single one of us here that you would help us by your grace to walk faithfully in that so that you would be lifted up in all things, Lord. I pray that the temptations that suffering may bring into our life, you would keep them, keep us from them, Lord. That we would be like Job, naked we came into the world and naked we would leave, Lord. That, that you would be our true treasure above everything else. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to endure when our strengths are too weak. Because in our weakness, your strength is made perfect and clear. Father, I pray these things and we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.